Yo, technology, what is it all about? In the real world, we know where the ads are. They're in squares, right? Windows, billboards, they're on magazines, right? But we know those squares are advertisements. Even when we browse the web, right? We pretty much know where the ads are. Imagine a metaverse environment where you're walking around fully you know, embedded in 3D, but you don't know where the ads are. Mm. Think how good AIs are going to get at modifying the room you're in to sell you something in a way that you don't notice. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, coming to you all the way from sunny slash rainy Oakland. And this week we have one of my new favorites back on the program. Philip Rosedale is here. Now, Philip was first on the show back in September. And if you don't recall, he is the founder of Linden Lab, the creator of Second Life, the OG metaverse before the metaverse this virtual world that's been going on for more than 20 years um and i had him on because of course mark zuckerberg had made a big to-do about his plans to build the metaverse it was the next iteration of the web we were all going to live life online via avatars etc etc and philip of course had been doing this longer than pretty much anyone because as i said second life goes back to 1999 and it still has today a million people using it. Very, very dedicated uh, kind of core community of people on it. Now, he left the board in 2013. He started High Fidelity, which is a spatial audio startup. And he's just very thoughtful with his views on this whole metaverse concept. And these were views that were really hard won through years and years of creating and overseeing Second Life, watching it grow, watching it, you know, the stumbling blocks it hit, what worked, what didn't, etc. A couple things have happened since we had Philip on in September. One is this year he returned to Second Life after years away. He is now an advisor. He also put some cash into the company from High Fidelity. Some of his employees went over there to really kind of help continue to build that experience out. And two, we have started to see some signs of what Meta and Mark Zuckerberg are building in terms of the metaverse. Now, the company announced a pilot program this month to enable creators to start selling digital goods in its Horizons virtual world. But the commissions are just short of 50%. 50%, which of course is rich given that Zuckerberg himself has waged a very bitter, very public campaign against Apple and its 30% App Store commissions. But that's neither here nor there. But that's what I wanted to have Philip back on, uh, is one to really talk about what drew him back to Second Life, nearly a decade of after having stepped away, and also and so just to kind of get a sense of what is happening there. And then two, to get his thoughts uh, and how they're evolving with regards to the metaverse as we start to see the kind of shape and look and feel of it. Um, and it's a concept into which Zuckerberg alone is putting in you know, $10 billion a year. And, you know, then there's Microsoft and Roblox, countless others kind of also putting billions toward this whole concept. So you guys will get a lot out of this. Philip is such a great thinker on, uh, on a lot of the obvious issues and also the not so obvious issues that come with kind of creating these new virtual worlds, what they say about the real world and how we can thoughtfully integrate this into 
life and you know where it works where it doesn't and just one last logistical point before we get started my audio got corrupted so we had to use the backup file so philip sounds great and crystal clear i sound a bit less great it's not that bad it's still fine but i just wanted to flag that so you know and that is it so without further ado here is my chat with philip rosedale of high fidelity and second life creator linden lab enjoy We just talk, uh, kind of go backward and talk about how you ended up being drawn back in. And actually, when did you leave? And obviously, you've been working on High Fidelity. When you left, why you came back, what's happening, what are you up to? Yeah, so for the last couple of years, we've been doing kind of two things, right? One is High Fidelity was doing spatial audio, and we were getting some wins, like we licensed it to Clubhouse, and we were we're talking to lots Mm. of other companies about licensing it to them so that, you know, you, you hear spatial voices when social uh, events are going on. And um, we've had some success doing that. looks like a good business, but about more than half of the people remaining in the company, when you first met me, uh, say middle of last year, were people that most of their skill set was still like, I guess you would kind of vaguely call it metaverse skills, networking, a little bit of graphics, a lot of moderation, a lot of sensibility around avatars and interaction between people and that kind of stuff. So we sort of had the problem that we were all enjoying working together. We didn't really know what to work on. We, you know, and and I, I can go more into this. I mean, I think this is the same challenge for Facebook as it is for everybody else it's hard to figure out how to make the next virtual world product. And so Mm. in looking at everything that was going on out there, we were struck by a couple of things. One was that Second Life remains one of the only companies that is providing virtual world services for grown-up people, not kids. And that Mm. distinction, which I can talk about more, is is really important. Like My guess is that more than 99% of the user hours that are happening in social avatar worlds is kids between seven and 14 years old. So it's really important to recognize that that is not the mainstream audience that like brands would want, you know, like- They don't have a credit card. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The fantasy of the metaverse is grownups participating in social interactions in meetings or school or going to concerts or whatever, but we're absolutely not there yet. So we realized like, really, as we looked at it ourselves, we were struck by weaving high fidelity. We were struck by how- there's really nobody that's had any success with grownups other than Second Life and a couple of other ones, by the way, like VR chat, which is a really, really interesting experiment in um, getting people actually into headsets into a very user-created space like Second Life. So there's hats off to those guys. It's a good, that's a good product as well. But we looked at it and we just decided that like, first thing was, you know, Second Life is one of the only companies doing it. The second thing that's really important and I think has become even more important in the last few months is that the business model of Second Life and the way that it does what it does actually does not cause people harm. There's been tons and tons of academic studies of this, but basically Second Life actually, like the real world, or maybe on a good day, even a little better, it does tend to get people to be friends with people that they might not otherwise have been friends with or form relationships or fall in love or start a company, right? And it does that across borders and it does that very effectively. And it does that, although... It is certainly not free from the kinds of bias and racism that we carry with us as human beings. It doesn't make it worse. It's got some really endearing qualities. And so that made it really easy to say, well, 
we'll take the group that we have and some of our patents and actually some of our cash that we had because we raised a good deal of money and move it back to Second Life. And then I returned, but as an advisor. So I'm there part-time and I'm enjoying it very much. I'm hanging around more in Second Life again and it's a ton of fun, you know? So so just so I understand, so High Fidelity, basically you kind of transferred employees to Second Life? Yeah, basically? yeah, eight people leaving us with four and myself as an advisor. And the goal is what? The goal is to just help Second Life continue to grow and, you know, prosper and, you know, help with Second Life. I mean, we had a bunch of people that had really good skills. Second Life has actually been growing some during COVID. It hasn't taken off like a rocket ship, like nothing else has, you know, but yeah. it, it has grown. And I think there's great opportunities to grow it a lot more. Linden Lab also has a part of its business, which is called Tilia. And that business is a money service business that is designed to enable virtual worlds, games, anybody to create digital currencies inside their worlds legally. <laughs> so, you know, unlike all the crypto stuff, which lots of which is not legal uh, yeah. and is going to need to get sorted out. Second Life, you know, has spent 20 years actually doing the regulatory, like getting the licenses that are required to make it legal. And then also dealing with complicated things like fraud and KYC and all these things that you hear about around crypto. So basically, Linden a few years ago started providing this service to other companies and Linden Lab is the parent company of Second Life. So Linden Lab created a, basically a subsidiary called Tilia, Tilia Pay, that is this business that provides services to other companies. So for example, most recently, they announced a big deal with Unity, which basically allows any Unity developer to basically add digital mm -hmm. currency to their game. So it is possible, and we think likely, that Second Life is going to continue to also grow a lot because of that business. So there's basically right. like, there's the Second Life business, and then there's Tilia. And both of them, we felt like, well, we felt like we were much more uh, helpful with respect to Second Life. Perhaps as an advisor, I can be helpful to Tilia as well. So that's why we did it. And so just to give people a sense, if they hadn't listened to the past episode we did, how many people will, are on Second Life right now? Oh, right now, there's probably about 55,000 people that are actually logged in right now, like walking yeah. around in there. And the total number of people using it on a monthly basis and actively using it is, is close to a million. Got you. So it's and, a million, uh, not a billion. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to So again, just for background purposes, you launched Second Life. Was it tw is it 20, full 20 years ago? Yeah, more. Yeah, I started the company in 99. 99. Yeah. And you, of course, were a maximalist. You're like a billion people are going to be on this thing. And then, you know, you are where you are now. And there's a whole economy in there, which I think is another thing people don't yeah. realize. Yeah. So um, the, the, the economy of Second Life is about $650 million a year, a year U.S., happening, uh, you know, in Linden dollars, it has its own currency, but the yeah. US equivalent is $650 million a year in transactions going on between people. And the average virtual goods transaction is only about $2, which is one wow. of the challenges why Second Life can't use crypto, for example, because Second Life's rate of transactions is mm -hmm. higher than both Bitcoin and Ethereum put together, um, which is right, about 20 right. a second. So right. it's a lot of transactions. And so one of the reasons I want to talk to you is because Meta came out with this plan and they're saying, look, we're going to try to kind of start really trying to kind of catalyze a metaverse economy, make it really easy for people to create 
digital assets, buy and sell them, trade them in virtual worlds. But when you add up all of their commissions, it's something, it's, yeah, it's over 50%, which right. just is bananas to me. Yep. Yeah, um, exactly. And Second Life is a tiny fraction of that, even counting in all of its fees. And Second Life is a profitable, very successful business. So there's just there's absolutely no reason right. that you would have to charge people 50%. So just two things on that. Can you give a couple examples? Because I think most people obviously are not on Second Life. They don't know what it is, how it functions, et cetera. But can you give a couple examples of sellers, people who are making a living selling stuff in Second Life? Well, we estimate that there are probably a few thousand people who would if we ask them, say that their whole, like their job, their real, real world job mm-hmm. is working in Second Life. And as you said, the majority of those people are building digital goods mm-hmm. that are being sold to others. So the biggest single category in Second Life would be like hair, jewelry, and accessories for your avatar, logically, you know, just like in the real world, apparel and, you know, appearance is a big deal. So that constitutes probably, I don't know, you know, $300 million a year or something in, in, wow. in virtual goods. And as I said, the average, you know, pair of glasses or something in second life is like a few dollars. I mean, some things are thousands of dollars, but uh, one of the interesting comparisons to NFTs and the sort of hype and craziness going on there is that if second life is any indication, and I think it's a fairly good one, unsurprisingly, the cost of things in a virtual world is lower than in the real world because they don't have the same expenses associated with atoms, you know, to make them. Yeah. 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 Unless it's a bored ape. <laughs> right. <laughs> the bored ape. Although I don't know if you saw this, there's this great story this week of the guy who spent like two and a half million dollars on the NFT of Jack Dorsey's first tweet. I do and remember Jack Dorsey selling it. What happened though? What happened this week? So a guy buys it for two and a half million. He then, um, gets caught up in some financial shenanigans. I think he or his company is now going bankrupt and he's put his he put his NFT up for sale and the top bid was like $300. No. Yes. The top bid for Jack's tweet is now 300. Where's Elon when we need him? Where's Elon? He's got to flip it to Elon. Elon will pay, I don't know, you know, 4 million or something, right? Say at least, come on. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, I just thought that was funny. But so are there like kind of any off the top of your head, any kind of second life millionaires, you know, where it's just like, all I do is sell hairstyles or all I do is sell earrings. And I'm like, this well, is my job. Yeah. I mean, there have been many millionaires. I can think of a couple of examples. One of the most famous ones over history was Anshe Chung, who was on the cover of Business Week in 2006. You can look up the Business Week mm. article that had her avatar. It was amazing. She made her money mostly through renting, buying, and then selling, but I think mostly renting real estate in Second Life. So, and again, I could go all day about like the differences between the Web3 stuff and Second Life, Mm. but something that happens in Second Life is that you'll get these big communities where sometimes an entrepreneur will basically create, you know, a theme or a larger community. And and by doing that, they can develop the land literally, you know, literally like a neighborhood and then sell the houses or sell the properties in there or rent them to people. And so Anshe, I think circa around 2006 became like, so far as we knew, you know, the first millionaire just in terms of the value of her holdings. But there have been other people, there was a group called Ozemals that made a, and I think they still do, 
these amazing pets that could breed with other pets, I guess a little bit like the crypto kitties phenomena. But again, these were, these were actual cuddly little pets that crawl around, you know, in your house in second life. And they were also making millions a year. If I remember maybe in the 2008 or 2009 timeframes, but there have been, as I said, there, there's, there's many people, there's probably hundreds of, you know, people that have become millionaires over time from creating and selling things in second life. So Going back to present day and what Meta is up to and this kind of broader concept of the metaverse, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out where this goes. And I don't know if you have, you know, you're kind of, you're back kind of more on the coal face of this. And, you know, we're starting to see the shape of what Meta is trying to build. How do you see this playing out? Because it does feel like when you talk about a 55% commission on anything that is being sold through, uh, I think it's Meta's uh, Horizons kind of metaverse, you know, that's a very high rent. Yeah. While 55% seems ridiculous, you know, in terms of any sane assessment of what reasonable costs would be for a service operator to provide that service. I think what we're missing out is, and this may be somewhat intentional, the most important conversation to be had about what Facebook is trying to do is the tremendous danger of it being an ad-based, surveillance-based, behavioral targeting-based business. So my thoughts about that, I, you know, we probably talked about it last time, but they've really evolved and it's just an incredibly important point to be made. And, and basically the point is this, you know, Facebook and Google are really the only two companies that are guilty of this, but these companies have used, you know, collecting a lot of data about what you're doing and then using that data to target you with advertisements that are designed to persuade you or suggestions in the case of, for example, YouTube. Much has been written about this. You know, there's a great film called The Social Dilemma that's all about this. But the gist of it is that people don't understand how much information they're giving to these big companies and how effectively it can be used against them. And if you go from social media or Instagram or YouTube and you go into a full-scale three-dimensional virtual world where you're walking around as an avatar, that situation becomes dreadfully worse in ways that most people understandably probably aren't thinking about. And so I'm really getting out there every time I talk about this and saying, we've, we've all got to realize this is absolutely a road we can't go down. And the reason why, why is it worse? Yeah. Why is it worse? Two reasons. The first reason is you don't know where the ads are in a metaverse. So you're looking at somebody across the street and they're sipping their coffee and waving at you. That might not be a real person. That might be an advertisement, right? So in the real world, we know where the ads are. They're in squares, right? Yep. They're in little squares, windows, billboards, they're on magazines, right? But we know those squares are advertisements. Even when we browse the web, right? We pretty much know where the ads are. Imagine a metaverse environment where you're walking around fully you know, embedded in 3D, but you don't know where the ads are. Mm. Think how good AIs are going to get at modifying the room you're in to sell you something in a way that you don't notice. That's the first reason. So the first reason is- It's almost giving, like kind of like AI-powered catfishing. Good way of putting it, right. The AIs are going to be able to re-render everything around you, right, to, to move you a little bit in one direction or another. The second thing, and I don't know whether this is even more serious, but it's equally dreadful. When you are speaking and moving your body around in a 3D environment, the machines now have a lot more information about you. And let me go into a couple of those. Mm. First, 
your body movement, for example, the way you walk, viewed by an AI, is what we call a confident biometric. So okay. it means when you walk into the room in a metaverse, the AI services that are in that room know it's you, whether or not you want them to. They know exactly who you are because they match you up against, say, the way you're walking and the way you're swinging your arms. And it turns out that that's easy. Now, not even your voice. Of course, once they hear your voice, they know for sure. But right. just from seeing you across a room, an AI yeah, can say, that's the same person that I saw in that other store yesterday. So solid biometrics can be applied to body movement, which is very unfortunate. And so that means that the AIs will know exactly who you are. Now, the second thing, I don't know if this is worse or better, but imagine a machine that knows where your eyes are looking, where your gaze is falling, right? You've probably heard that TikTok has built a very good and potentially destructive new business around watching how long you linger on each yes. video. Imagine now if I also had where your eyes were pointed, if I knew which person in the room you just glanced at, and the AIs are going to know that. And so their ability to manipulate you and to create a profile on you and to surveil you is knows no limits in a virtual world. That may be cause for us not to build virtual worlds altogether, but I think it's more likely that what will happen is that we need some very, very strong common understanding and some legislation, but I think even a lot of just industry practice and social pressure and everything else to recognize that we simply cannot build businesses around 3D worlds that use surveillance, behavioral targeting, and tracking. We just can't, we cannot go down that road at all. And but it's Facebook, already happening, right, with Meta. And Facebook's whole business is that, exactly. The only way that Facebook can safely build a metaverse is if they abandon advertising as a mechanism. So that's why I was saying the 50% you were mentioning before on the fees, it doesn't count what they're making on the advertising. They're making the other 50% on surveilling you yeah, and hitting you with ads. So, you know, it, it, it makes that 50% look even more ridiculous because frankly, if they're going to surveil you, they shouldn't need to charge any fees on your digital goods because they got you already. Yeah. So, so we, it's like the Facebook uh, model, just everything's free. Yeah. Yeah. So we can't, we can't let them do that. We can't do that. Now the good news is check it out. Second life makes more money per person that actively uses Second Life, more money on an annual basis than Facebook makes across its businesses per person. And then YouTube makes, Google makes across its businesses, but for example, YouTube makes on advertising. So my point is you can actually make the same amount of money as measured by person running a virtual world like Second Life does only based on fees, no advertising. Se sorry, Second Life has no advertising. I don't remember if we talked about that before, but Second Life is based on three types of fees. Um, one is digital goods fees, which is just like what Facebook's talking about now. The second one is land fees, land use fees. So if you own land, you have to kind of help with the server fees. It's basically hosting. And then the uh, third one is premium accounts. So there's like a premium account you can pay a fee for that does not have advertising. Um, actually, well, none of the accounts have advertising. The premium account just gives you some other benefits. So it's totally fees-based. Company makes a ton of good money and it makes more money per person than Facebook does. So Facebook cannot hide behind the excuse that you have to do advertising to have a big business. That's total nonsense. So I have two questions. You mentioned earlier how the way that Second Life is set up is kind of a net positive for, for its users um, in terms of making friends and just how they feel right. about themselves, socializing, et cetera. But if it's, if it's used by, say, if there's a million people that use it, 
what happens when that's a billion? Because it feels like if you've been around for more than two decades, mm-hmm. Second Life has been found by its power users. It's like the people who just love it. Mm-hmm. And um, it hasn't scaled to like the many billions, but it's found it's like this really amazing niche of people who love it and spend time there and spend money there and are kind of invested. If you're talking about something that is going to be used by, you know, Facebook today is used by 3 billion people, yep. Google, however many billion. Um, if you're kind of getting to that level, you know, for lack of a better term, the assholes are going to come as well. Right, right. So is there a scale issue there where it's like you have, you've kind of created this almost like, you know, utopia of people who are all kind of, I mean, you know, on the margins, I'm sure there's going to be terrible people too, but, you know, mostly people are invested in this. It's a deeply personal thing that they enjoy. Whereas if it's just this mass market, come one, come all, that dynamic surely would change, no? It does. And that's something that I've been thinking and writing about a lot lately. I most recently published a long thing called Thoughts on Virtual World Moderation and Identity. Um, so let me let me hit a couple of the points there and give you some ideas. I mean, first of all, you're raising exactly the right question, which is a billion people with more casual use patterns. How do you get them to get along in a positive way? Well, first of all, back up, because the first observation I would make is 7 billion people get along on planet earth without killing each other. I I mean, they sometimes do, but we have at least a standard that we can look at, which is we have a reasonably stable human society, even given the last, you know, couple of terrifying, you know, say months, uh, you know, most recently, but mostly people don't kill each other. They don't, you know, go out of their way to cause harm. You know, most of us don't in our waking lives say, here's how I really hurt someone or bullied someone, right? Almost none of us have that to report. So the question is, how is it that the real world kind of manages to make us all get along, right? Because I think that's what we want to apply to virtual worlds. We want to ask the same question and say, can we use the same mechanisms that we use in the real world for moderation and uh, you know, creating civil society that in the virtual world? And I think we can. The pieces are, one, people have to be strongly attached to an identity And there has to be consequences of doing bad things, right? So simple example, like if you come to my nightclub in the virtual world and you're rude to people and I throw you out, you need to not be able to come back. How do we get that done? We get that done by creating identity systems that are stickier and stronger than the ones we have today. And it's no big deal to do that. And again, Second Life in a limited way is a great example of that. What happens in Second Life is you own land, you have a business, you have 50 close friends, you hang out in this one particular part of the the world most of the time, that creates consequences. So if you behave badly in Second Life and you're, you know, a committed member of the community, it's going to be a problem. As you said, though, more casual consumptive use, we have to have the same model to do that. But again, the real world has lots of tourists in it and tourists treat each other with respect and they treat the place they're visiting with respect. So I believe that by pulling things from the real world and examples from things like Second Life, it is not at all impossible to create a civil society online that has all of the good properties that we exhibit, you know, in our in, in our best, you know, in the real world. And of course, has some benefits that the real world doesn't have, such as the resort to physical violence doesn't exist in online. And the other one is some of the biases and preconceptions we have about each other can be left behind by changing aspects, for example, of our avatars. So that we don't we don't need to give away things that would right. 
get us into trouble with with other people at the outset or whatever. We can make choices about that where in the real world we can't. Well, it's so interesting talking about, you know, kind of we can we can create a civil online world. And it's like speaking about the kind of as before we started recording about the Musk Twitter thing. I mean, that the very crux of that is, you know, how differing views as to how to kind of moderate the mob. The reality, it seems to me, is that if you talk to people on the left, it's like, we need more moderation. This is otherwise a terrible danger for democracy. Talk to people on the right, you're like, we need way less moderation. This is a danger to democracy. (laughs) I know. It's just hard. It's just hard when you get to that many people and it just feels like, uh, and I don't know if that's fatalistic to be like, you know, this is just the nature of the beast. It's always going to be messy. There's this weird moment I've had lately, and I don't know if this makes sense or is fun to talk about here, but I feel like technology is at this adolescent moment, right? Where like as technologists, nobody took us seriously in the nineties, right? You know, everybody thought we weren't going to make it anyway. And now that we've made it, (laughs) what's going to happen next, right? And so there's this thing I think that's happening in technology. I mean, I'm an optimist, so I hope this works, but it's that we're in this adolescent moment, you know, technology and the, and the humans that are building technology, they're like 18 right now. So we're at this critical moment where we need to take responsibility for the impact that these systems have, you know, Elon Musk has 80 million followers. And if he sends a message out, it's going to be read within a few minutes by hundreds of thousands of people. And then ultimately by millions and millions. Should you have, and I'm not saying this in like a legal way, I'm saying like as a human being, considering it with your friends or whatever, should you bear any responsibility and care for that outsized footprint that you have in messaging to people? Well, of course the answer is yes, right? But technology feels a little bit like kids playing with, you know, toys sometimes and just pounding on things, right? Like you've got these angry technologists that are like, nobody took me seriously and now I'm going to have my way with everyone, you know? And so I think we're at this moment where, We got to grow up and realize this stuff is running the world. We have to do the right things. We have to make the right decisions as, as a human, you know, population about them, but stepping back, I think it could be done. I think it's just that we've got to go through this point where everybody, whether it's Elon or anybody else needs to say like, it is absolutely not okay to say it's just technology or this isn't the real world. No, it's the real world. You know, Twitter is the real world. Twitter is a public commons. I'll just say it. I mean, there is no question, but that we should, if we believe that there's a legal defense of a public commons in any country that relates to kind of what the rules are, how communication happens, how free speech happens, we need to treat Twitter exactly like that. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no hiding and saying, oh, this is a smaller space or something. Nonsense. It is as big as all of us now. So we've, we've got to fix that. I think the other observation I would have is a lot of the stuff on the internet, most recently it's been like crypto and free speech seems to have been built by kids in some sense who literally never even opened a book or asked anyone a question about how it actually works, right? With crypto, it's economics, right? The statement, a money system with a fixed supply of tokens, which never increases, used by people to buy and sell things, Any economist will tell you that that's a non-starter. It will not work. There's any number of books written about it. No economist would say that it will work. And yet we have crypto with people saying, this is the way money's going to work. It's absolutely not in its current form, the way money's going to work ever. And so it's weird. I think the thing with free speech and I don't know exactly what Elon's perspective is on it, but free speech is the same thing. I mean, the mindset that the only thing that matters is free speech and more speech is always better and more is always more free is factually false. It's been studied by 
psychologists and government officials. And, you know, it's been explored by people richly over hundreds of years. And everybody knows that a system where you just pay coins, mash the talk button, and then shout anything you want is by no means any kind of a realization of free speech. And it, it's yeah. not what we want. And, and like you said, you've got the, you know, you've got the conservative and the liberal side of it, but it doesn't matter. In any event, Twitter in its current form does not represent a safe place for free speech and just unblocking everybody absolutely won't do that either. It's well understood. Yeah. And that's what I think it's really interesting because he's saying, I mean, in that case, Musk is kind of pitching it as like, you know, he's he's on a mission to save humanity by decarbonizing transport, by making us multi-planetary, and now saving civilization by ensuring free speech by the vague terms, just being like, we'll follow the law, but other than that, like, you can say whatever you want. And it's kind of like, uh, it just feels like a very kind of immature or kind of not really well thought out idea. And it's a bad business. You know, there's a reason Twitter, Twitter doesn't want to have thousands of moderators. Right. They do it because if they don't, people will leave because yep. it becomes a cesspool. <laughs> yep. No, I mean, there's a very simple example of it that we used to encounter all the time in High Fidelity and Second Life mm. and that the real world does too, which is if I can just show up when you're talking to friends and play loud music so you can't hear, that's not enabling free speech. Mm. That's just enabling me to do harm. That, that's enabling exactly the opposite. I'm actually suppressing your free speech by just standing right next to you and shouting so loudly that you can't think. Yeah. Here's my boom box right in your face. Yep. And actually, we literally saw that with High Fidelity. It was fascinating. You know, High Fidelity, as we brought hundreds and thousands of people into shared single spaces together, you know, we would see people kind of test this stuff out. And so anybody, again, anybody that looks at Mm. this or looks at history knows that there's a complicated set of checks and balances that result in a stable public commons, for example. Yeah. You can't just go into a public commons with loudspeakers on the top of a truck when people are standing around trying to do things or drive down the beach, you know, it's, it's not legal. There's good reasons for that. It's, yeah. it's checks and balances. You can't do it exactly like that. In that case, it's because you can't have a louder voice than everybody else. So, you know, there's a concept of fairness, right? A public commons in which there's a good deal of fairness is not sufficient to enable a public commons, but that's one aspect of it, right? I think a lot, there's a great writer named Danielle Allen. She's running for, I think, Congress or Senate right now. And she's a great thinker who's written a lot about race and about freedom. You know, her, her, her book's called uh, Talking to Strangers, that, the, the one that I've most oh, recently yeah. read and really yeah, yeah. been moved by. But, you know, w- what she says is to enable people to live together and to live together with their differences, you have to enable them to do what she calls fair fighting. In other words, everybody's got to be empowered to walk away, to run away and, and not come back, um, to shout, but not so loud, maybe even to push. You know, maybe even to push on each other. I look, I'm I don't want you here anymore, and neither yeah. do my friends, right? But establishing the rules in the metaverse for fair fighting, that's the thing that allows, as you said, that that's what allows us to avoid Twitter needing to have a million moderators. But Twitter doesn't have the low-level physics yet that mm-hmm. would enable that fair fighting. And so, as you say, it's very disingenuous for Elon or anyone else to say, oh, just unblock everybody to re-enable free speech. It's nonsense. The physics of Twitter doesn't yet allow for fair fighting. What do you mean by the physics? The rules of it, like the way that I can decide who I want to hear, the way that I can- The rules uh, of that universe and how it kind of works. 
the way I can respond when someone's shouting at me. I mean, you know, the very simple fact that I can't block the bots, that you can create another account tomorrow and come back and harass me again, or worse yet, you can create a robot army of accounts that say bad things about me. That's a non-starter. We can't go anywhere with that. Nobody would call that a free speech space. No. Because it's just rich people. And, and a lot of these problems come back to rich people can just pay money to overwhelm the space with signal. That's not free speech. Right. And so going back to the metaverse and, you know, in the months that since we last spoke, I mean, one of the things that stuck with me last time we spoke is, you know, when you, when all those years ago, when it was like Second Life was new and it was like the zeitgeist and hundreds of articles were written about this as like the new thing and like a billion people are going to be on it, et cetera. And you ended up with a million. And again, for those million people, it's a wonderful experience. When we're thinking about kind of the future, like this next iteration of the web, as Mark Zuckerberg likes to call it, what is your thinking now? Has it changed in terms of the potential of this idea? Because as you said, then it was like, real life is pretty great. There's a reason that this hasn't taken off before. And I'm sure there's some technological advancements that'll make it easier to yep. kind of dive in. But as this is starting to progress and starting slowly to take shape, what do you think? So I think that, I think you're absolutely right. And let me restate it humbly. As a kid, when I started Second Life, I thought that we were all going to use it and that it was going to, there were, there were going to be 3 billion people in it. And I think that there's a childish kind of a mindset that Mark Zuckerberg has, who, by the way, is a good deal younger than I am. I mean, that's, you know, there's something to that. I think there's a youthful enthusiasm that I had as well to say, like, everybody's going to be in the metaverse. I think the problems with that are to do that in particular, you have to give them a comfortable way to communicate with others that they regard as being equivalent as good enough for them to be there, you know, good enough for them to be there. And in particular, the, the question is, what does it take to get a grown up to have a meeting like you and I are having right now, but replace the video with an avatar? Yeah. And the answer is, we don't know yet. And that's why Second Life is a million people. The people that are in Second Life have had for various reasons, for a very diverse set of reasons. But for one reason or another, they've been willing to mostly give up living in the real world altogether to live in a virtual world. That could be because of a disability. It could be because of a hostile regime. You know, they could be living under conditions that make it hard for them to be out as themselves, right? It could be because they're uncomfortable with their body and they wanted a new one. Um, there are lots of different reasons and they're all different and, and, you know, remarkable, but most people are not yet ready to give up being human for being an avatar. And where the rubber hits the road is when you're face to face with other people. It's mm -hmm. we're just not there yet for playing a video game. Sure. It's great for watching Netflix. Yeah, it's great, but that's not the metaverse. The metaverse is the idea that we're all going to be together in some sort of a space and that it's going to feel normal. And we're just not there yet. And I thought say 15 years ago that it would be easier for us to get there, that we would come up with gadgets and better audio, yeah. like we're doing with high fidelity and different technology improvements that would make you and I do this meeting as avatars. And we're not there yet. And by the way, $10 billion a year in R and D budget to try to get there. It doesn't matter because the basic science problems haven't been solved that would get us there. Do we know what the basic science problems are? No, not exactly. But they're problems like 
well, in the specific example of VR headsets, when people wear VR headsets, it makes a lot of people sick yeah. and uncomfortable. Sick to their stuff, like nauseous. Yeah. Yeah. Nauseous, disoriented. That's a basic science problem. And we don't even have an idea other than the matrix, you know, other than things that plug into the back of our heads. <laughs> we don't have any idea yet how to solve that problem. Um, more pragmatically, capturing facial expressions in a way where if I saw you as an avatar, I would say, oh, that's Danny. Sure. Uh, we're not there yet. We're almost there on that one. We may get there in the next few years. I mean, there's some amazing work being done that I'm sure you've seen around avatars, but we're still not there yet. So the basic problems are those of expression and communication between avatars. Another related problem is in a high quality way, getting a whole bunch of people together in the same room, say more than a hundred people or more than a thousand people. We don't have technology solutions for that right now. That stuff's more doable. I mean, that's the kind of work I've been doing my whole career and we're getting there. You know, we got to 500 people in one room with high fidelity, for example, as avatars with headsets on, you know, talking and everything. But there's still a lot of human experiences that require more people in one space. Walking around a big city, you know, you are connected all the time with like a thousand people and then you're moving around and those thousand people are changing. It's a big technology problem. Just as a businessman, for your mm -hmm. businessman head on, talking about all those obstacles you just laid out do you think mark zuckerberg is kind of crazy for doing this because it does feel like he's taken this he's as you say spending 10 billion dollars a year to try to kind of make it so he's kind of pivoting away from i mean the ad machine continues but he's pivoting away from a lot of the core that core business to kind of to this next core business when we still have all these things that are probably going to take years to figure out and it's not something that anybody other than Mark Zuckerberg, who can never be fired, would even attempt because it just seems so outlandish when you look at it from a kind of a business perspective. I love the way you frame it, like talking about, is he, is he crazy? You know, I remember uh, I was being interviewed probably around 2006 about Second Life. And um, the person interviewing me said, uh, you know, when you started, did you think it would work? Did you think that this virtual world thing would work. Yeah. And what I said to him was, well, look, I felt like I was sure. I felt absolutely sure from when I was much younger, even that virtual worlds would someday work, that we would all be able to have these remarkable experiences together in a virtual world. I still believe that, you know, by the way today, but then what I said to him was, but as to whether myself and the people that were working on it with the funding that we had and the friends that we had and whatnot at that specific time, you know, 2003, we're going to be able to make it work. I don't know. I wasn't sure. I, I mean, I had no idea. And the, the, I remember the interviewer was an interesting uh, guy. And, and he said to me, what did your parents think? <laughs> that was a great question and a fair one. So what I think is, I like big bets too. I, I think Mark is right that long-term, yeah, yeah, you know, we're all going to move more of our leisure activity and more of our educational activity and meetings and stuff into the metaverse. Does he have the cash and the timeline to make that happen right now? I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't bet on it. Like, I, I think it's a big Hail Mary uh, move. I think it's the right, I mean, I think like from the standpoint of a businessman, by the way, I don't disagree with it. I think it's probably a good move. Facebook is an aging company that's becoming irrelevant. I mean, they need to pull out a big, big move to make, yeah. to make it work. And I think it's the right big move. As I said earlier, I am gravely concerned as a human that executing on it as an ad business 
would be dreadful. And so I hope that they fail in that regard. I don't hope that they fail in, you know, aspirationally, but I hope that Facebook either succeeds without an ad business or, you know, decides not to do it or that they fail. Right. Lastly, we spoke last time, and I think it was when we had finished recording, but I thought there was there's something you said around kind of some of the social kind of lessons that you've been able to learn through Second Life. And one of them was specifically around kind of the way people choose their avatar and their identity and its relations to, say, race, ethnicity, et cetera. Could you just talk a little bit about that? Because I, I found it like a really interesting thing if like if you're a black person maybe in second life you don't want to be or if you're a white person you want to be black or you know kind of how how that kind of plays out i think that um like like so many other people and, and hopefully a lot of entrepreneurs i've thought a lot more about race and bias and discrimination in the last few years than i have mm -hmm. in the prior 20. yeah and so i want to say respectfully that i think it's incredibly complicated so for example you know if you are living a minority experience of one kind or another and you come to second life i wouldn't just say well you can just cast off that part of your identity and and be well in there i don't think that's true at all however the control that you have about the interplay of what you expose to others and how you are in control of that with the avatar is definitely an empowering tool and there's plenty of stories from second life that validate that you know don't ask me ask people that are in there. So I think that it is an improvement on the real world in some ways relative to identity and how we project ourselves. I think that it is not a magic fix. I think yeah. that we still all need to accept each other as we are across, you know, many differences and recognize that, um, you know, we've done harm and that there is racism and that it's meaningful and and that we need to address it as a human population. And I don't think that anything a virtual world can do is going to be that solution, but I do think that it can help and it can start conversations. But so is it common that, or is it the rule almost that when, you know, people are setting up their avatar that they are dramatically different than what they are in real life? Not exactly. A lot of times, but, but again, I don't want to, I don't want to overextend this and say for a specific person of a specific uh, background, but people do in second life tend to create a more aspirational version of themselves. A lot of times they'll, they'll use kind of quirky or iconic features of their avatar to say something about themselves, right? They'll have a reference to a famous person kind of in their look, or they'll have, you know, they'll have something going on that's cool and interesting that you know kind of makes their identity unique but in many cases actually they go with a basic sort of a body plan that is often not dissimilar from their own not not again not in every case but i would say statistically you see a lot of kind of starting with myself and then exploding that into some kind of an aspirational vision but again, you know, if you are less comfortable with in the real world with an aspect of your personality, it may well be that you kind of turn that dial down more in something like Second Life. And I think that's an example of where we need to make progress together. You know, people should feel equally free to express themselves in any way. And if you look at something like the appearance of an ensemble of avatars in Second Life, I think, for example, you would see that they're still whiter for example, than our population is. And that is concerning. That's the kind of thing that we need to be all right. taking on. Right. It's fascinating. Well, look, I always 
enjoy the conversations because I just think there's endless kind of yeah. strands to pick up. But I will. Um, I think we can leave it there for now. Um, <laughs> but um, thank you for taking the time as ever. Yeah, this is great. And I'm happy to do more later. And that was all the time we have. I want to thank Philip for taking the time to speak again on Danny in the Valley. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen, for sharing the pod with other folks, for your ratings, for your reviews, for your support, for your tips, all the stuff. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I will be doing a, a larger piece on the metaverse in the next couple of weeks, so do keep an eye out for that at thetimes.co.uk. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. I'll promote it there at Danny Fortson, but I'm talking to some kind of second life sellers, you know, metaverse millionaires. It's really fun. It's a kind of a real, just a glimpse into what might be possible as we think about the metaverse. So do keep an eye out for that. That is it for me this week. Have a fabulous weekend and we will talk to you very soon. Bye-bye.